Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. Got the usual crew with us here today. James, Abby, Shoddy Dave, Ronan, and Dane. All at once, everybody. How are you? Top. Good. Fantastic. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work. I was trying to make this a more efficient process. Uh, you know, so we don't have to go all the way around the rooms. Everybody says hi. I think, you know, our listeners know everybody. Anyway, it failed. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the regular version next week. We have a lot to talk about today. It's Monday. Today's the last stage of the Giro before the first rest day. So we're going to talk through, well, basically where the Giro stands, some of the big storylines, the big wins and the big losses. Uh, people like Joe Dabrowski, Caleb Ewan, lots of crashes, Edgar Bernal, what the GC picture looks like, all that good stuff. And then we're going to have... A little bit of a debate as to whether gravel belongs in Grand Tours. Yes. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get yes. there, James. Well, we know where James stands, I guess. Yes. <laughs> we'll get there. And then we've got news from a series of one days in Spain for the women's peloton. whole bunch of racing happened over the course of, what, three or four days? And we'll run through all of those. Finally, in today's Nerd Nugget... I'm not going to give the the whole topic away, but basically there was a really impressive bit of trail side race side mechanicking at the World Cup, the cross country World Cup over the weekend. We're going to dig into that a little bit. Before we do, though, Shoddy Dave, what are we learning about Continental this week? All right, then everyone knows that Continental make amazing tires. They also make the products that sit inside the tyres, though. Right, if you're on Team Tube inside, Continental have a range of tubes for every occasion. Use the stand. Very excited. What about 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 having a face-off between Team Tube and no Team Tube? I think we should come to that at the end of this. Uh, yep. This pre-roll. Okay, use the standard tubes for everyday riding or... If racing is your gig, there's the lightweight or supersonic tubes. Uh, ones that I used to use all the time when I was racing. Right, next up, available in a range of sizes and with various valve lengths, you'll find the right inner tube to use with your Continental tyres. And yes, Continental haven't forgotten Team No Tube. The Continental Revo sealant is just what you need if you're going tubeless. Whether that's road, gravel or mountain bike, it's made to be used with Continental's tubeless system. So, whichever camp you're in, Continental has you covered. So, all right then, folks, who's team tube? Who's team no tube? James, let's start with you. I'm split. I run, I run team tube inside on road tires under like 30 mil, and I run tubeless for pretty much everything else. I'm the same. If we're specifically talking about road tires, then yeah. Team tube inside all the way, hundred percent. This is the hill I die on. I want to know what Ronan, what team is Ronan on? <laughs> yeah, come on, Ronan. What team are you on, mate? For 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 a very specific reason, I run tubeless on my road tires. It's because I like to race a little bit, Ooh. and most mm. of the races I do don't have neutral service. So having a little bit of sealant running around in there sometimes means that I can puncture and still continue to race. Hmm. Abby, go on. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Te technical stuff there. Yeah. Whatever Tom sets it up, that's how I ride it. Well, 
if, if if we all had a professional looking after our bikes, we just wouldn't know what to be doing, would we? What about you, Dane? What pro have you got looking after your bike? No pros for me. No neutral service though either, so it's a tough call. Uh, but I don't race at all, so it's definitely tubes for me. Nice one. And I'm with James. I'm with James and well, James and Kaylee. I've got a bit of a mix at the moment, but always before that was team team tubes and it, the supersonic with me faves. Conte sent me some of those supersonics, but in 650C size, not really sure what to do with those. Well, you stretch mm. them, obviously. <laughs> I mean, they probably would go on a 700, I would imagine. I don't think that'd be a but good idea. But they're already really, really thin, <laughs> so maybe not. I, I was going to say, I don't think that'd be a good idea for the supersonic tubes, Kaylee. <laughs> I don't, I've got to find something to do with these now. It, there was just one, there's actually one of these in a box that Continental sent over uh, of like hats and t-shirts and stuff for this podcast. And I'm not, maybe it was an accident. I'm not really sure. I'm not well, really sure what to do with a 650C supersonic tube. Well, if it's anything else like right now in the, in the bike industry, Kaylee, you could probably sell it on eBay for about a thousand dollars. I'm sure I'll do that. Yeah. Pump it straight back into Velo Club. It'll be great. Shall we move on? Thank you as always to Conti for sponsoring the podcast this year. We love you. Let's get into the news. I think we have to start with the Giro. It's, well, it's the sort of big elephant in the room at the moment for, for bike racing. Dane, where do we want to kick off? We want to start with like a week ago. We haven't, we haven't done a podcast since the end of last week. Let's go back Where a do bit. we want to kick off? Let's go back a bit. Uh, talk about some of the things that happened last week. Uh, make a quick mention of the fact that Joe Dombrowski got his first... Grand Tour stage win. Hooray for Joe. Uh, it was Good great job, to Joe. see that. He, it, and you, you, you'd written about this uh, on the website, Kaylee, how, how long it had been since his great baby Giro performance, uh, which had a lot of Americans very excited about what we could expect from him in the future. And things didn't really work out for Joe over the last many years. Uh, a number of times where, yeah, we just we went in thinking he was going to do big things at the Grand Tours, and those things didn't happen. He came close uh, once or twice here and there. So it was really nice to see him finally get that stage win. Uh, and, and I think a lot of American fans were happy to see some of that promise finally showed up as a, as a Giro stage win. Uh, and it, it was good that it was the Giro because it, you know, it was in Italy that he really showed off first that he had that, that great climbing talent that he has. Just to remind everybody, he, he won the baby Giro, which is like the U23 Giro, and he did so over top of none other than Fabio Aru. And this was in... Yeah, 20, was it 2010, 2011? It was a long time ago. Anyway, as a youngster, and uh, it took a long time to come back and win anything else in Italy. Good for Joe, getting that first, I believe his first ever World Tour win, period, also happened to be his first uh, Grand Tour stage win. Unfortunately for Joe, the next day, uh, he and, and Mikel Landa and a couple of other people crashed quite hard. Quite hard. Joe had to leave the race, Mikel Landa had to leave the race, broke a bunch of bones, did Landa. Uh, Pavel Sivakov got pretty badly hurt. Uh, it was a rough day out there on stage five of the Giro. And, and I think uh, that stage will have some impact down the road. First of all, I think Landa was looking really good. Uh, so definitely a bummer for him and for his fans and, and all the, the believers in Landismo uh, that Mikel Landa is once again out of contention at another Grand Tour. This is the first time in years that he is not going to finish in the top seven, but outside of the top three which he had done so consistently the past several Grand Tours. So feel bad for Mikel. 
and his team. But at least Byron Victorious came back and got a stage win the next day uh, for Gino Mater, which was pretty pretty cool. Uh, particularly for Mater, who only a few months ago was uh, was mugged at the line by Primoz Roglic, and uh, it was nice to see. And and he, I was glad to see them. They asked about it in the uh, post race interview, and Mater said, "Yeah, I was basically thinking about that the entire finale uh, about that Pyrenees finish and." I just, I was worried it was going to get passed right before the line. And, and uh, yeah, I was glad he admitted that. And I was also glad that he didn't get caught. Nice to see for, for him and for Bahrain. Maybe we can switch gears, though, talk about sprinting. Because Caleb Ewan, I think, first of all, he's, he's won two stages now of the Giro. And second of all, he then left the Giro. Which, some people, some guy, I don't know, some guy in Belgium, what's his name? Hold on. Edward uh, Merckx. Uh, yeah, he seemed to be displeased. <laughs> Uh, that Caleb, whoever that is, he seemed to be displeased that Caleb Ewan left the race. Also, I guess his son, Axel, whoever that is, uh, expressed <laughs> displeasure that Caleb Ewan has left the race. First of all, I'd like to point out that if Mr. Edward Merckx, whoever he is, had read cyclingtips.com a week ago, he would have known that Caleb Ewan was planning to leave the race because we talked to him and uh, wrote about it. I guess he didn't read our website. That's fine, Eddie, whatever. He was planning to leave. And also... When he did leave, he wasn't feeling uh, in, in top condition. He wasn't feeling the best, having some issues, health issues. So, I don't know. Can we really blame Caleb Ewan for telling us he was going to leave and then leaving? So, so Edward, uh, Edward was, was, was annoyed by the fact that he, that he thinks Caleb Ewan pulled out sort of without a good reason. He said he, something about um, basically like insulting the race. He wasn't giving the race the, it, it's, its due importance. I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I mean... Sprinters have been doing this for a very long time. I mean, think back to like Mario Cipollini. Mario Cipollini didn't finish pretty much any of the Grand Tours that he started. Sometimes not, uh, sometimes because he just got time cut, but often because he would just leave. He would just win a bunch of stages at the Giro early and then he just peace out. This is sort of a long tradition of sprinters doing this. I'm not really sure what Edward is so, so, you know, in a huff about here. Doesn't seem particularly unusual to me. It's it's not just Big Eddie who's upset about it. There does seem quite a few people on Twitter getting a bit irate about it. And I've even seen people complain to Eurosport GCN saying, like, look here, we've paid our money to see the the best of the best, and then the best of the best are leaving. They're not they're not showing respect to the fans, which is well, like you say, Cipollini was an expert at this. He finishes zero Tour de France, zero Vuelters, and I think he only finished maybe like five out of the 13 zeros that he started. And you could set your watch by him. Like, it was like, right, he's going to leave at this time exactly. And no one ever batted an eyelid. Yeah, I think it's a bit, I don't know. I, I, see, I see the argument, right? I mean, you started this race, like, pulling out of a race is never something to be proud of, I don't think, uh, particularly when you weren't forced out of it. But at the same time, he's he's got this kind of stated goal of winning stages in every Grand Tour this whole year. If he does an entire Giro, the chances of him being fresh and sprightly for a Tour de France are significantly diminished. You know, this is a rider who is going to be kind of on the edge on a lot of climbing stages anyway, because he's a sprinter. And I, I, I think that from a practical standpoint, it, it's a it's a good decision. But yeah, you could all you could obviously make the case that that he should stick around and he should continue to race some of the other sprinters throughout the rest of the race. But I, I have a hard time getting getting in a huff about this. Yeah, I, I don't care anyway that he left the race, but he also did say that he had some knee pain. And he you know wrote on 
social media today. I've done some stuff with my positioning to help the knee pain I felt since the start of stage eight. Once it's completely gone, I'll resume my training to prepare for the tour. Uh, so I think he, you know, he, he said that he had a, a decent reason. We, we knew he was already planning to possibly leave, but he also did point out that he's having some knee pain. He said, to the people who think I've dis disrespected the race, I'm sorry you feel that way. If you saw the hard work and dedication I've put into my preparation to honor this race and perform at my best, I'm sure you wouldn't think the same. I'm more disappointed than anyone. I'm disappointed Dane didn't say that in an Australian accent. Oh, uh, we've got so many accents on this podcast already, Dave. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would imagine some of the issue lies in the fact that it was a planned, like that he had already planned to depart early anyway. And I, I could see how from the outside it, it could be perceived as being disrespectful of the race if you never had any intention of finishing whatsoever. Um, I mean, but things are obviously pretty different now than they were back in Merckx's day. I mean, back then you raced everything. You finished, you tried to finish, and you tried to win everything. That's just how it was, right? But now, like in the modern days with you know, hyper-specialization, I mean, you just, you you have these situations where, I mean, yeah, I mean, oftentimes the the sprinters just can't finish the whole Grand Tour anyway, or if they do, they're, they're at, they're, they do it at such a loss that it's not really beneficial to them. Is that a James Wong racing take that we just got? Nice. If he's going to be here, like, waiting for the tech session, I feel like he deserves to have <laughs> as many takes as he has, you know? <laughs> no, I, I, I wasn't. I, I, I was appreciative of the take. I think he's absolutely correct. Me too. Yeah. 100% correct. <laughs> Should we move on from Ewan? I, I think this is a, a, it's a non-controversy. You know, this is like, this feels to me kind of classic. Uh, we love some of our Belgian uh, cycling journalist colleagues, but they, they have a tendency to do this um, there and a bit in the UK and some of the some of the cycling nations over there. They, the press are a little bit more, I don't know, aggressive. To be fair, I think it's because <laughs> they care about cycling more than the US. We're plenty aggressive yes. with basketball, baseball and football stories. So if more people here actually watch cycling, we, we have that, too, I'm sure. Yeah, we don't have our own Eddie Marks to go ask about it. So if Eddie weighs in, it is news by default. Anyway, let's move on. Like I said, I think it's not particularly controversial. Shall we talk GC and where we stand and winners and losers and what's going on? Yeah, that seems like a good idea. We had a real big, big stage just uh, on Sunday where Egon Bernal proved he proved a couple of things. He'd already shown, I think, on the earlier climbing stages that he's clearly in good form. The back issues that have been troubling him the past several months appear to be at least resolved enough that he could, could be up there on the San Giacomo uh, finishing climb. But uh, on stage nine, we really saw some acceleration from him that I think shows he's in great shape. And particularly compared to this field, I mean, I don't know whether he's in good enough shape that he could take on Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic right now, but if you look at this field, at this Giro d'Italia, which is not full of the biggest, toppest, mostest uh, GC contenders, Bernal looks like the best guy here, and he did it on gravel, which I don't think most people would have, uh, would have thought that Bernal would be the best guy on gravel. He's not tiny, but he's not the biggest guy, uh, but he was able to get some acceleration. But he used to mountain bike race. He did. He did use to mountain bike as a kid too. So yeah, I, this is like barely gravel too. Let's let's be clear. Like we, it wasn't. It wasn't like, like crushing. Gravel. Yeah, it wasn't like crushing dirty Kansas. He was basically just if you know how to stand up out of the saddle without making your your rear wheel slip, then you're good to go. It was not like I don't. Bumpy, I don't know how to do that, Kelly. So this is gravel. impressive to me. Uh, <laughs> he was, he was yeah. of course third in Strata this year too, wasn't he? He was. He was. Yeah. Yeah. 
My favorite moment of that was when he, he crested sort of a small little rise and kind of took a small pause to shift into the big ring. And I think it was Chicone that was behind him who you could see on his face like, oh, thank God, because he slowed down for just like a millisecond and then he accelerated again. I mean, it was a super, super impressive effort. And to sort of like take a pause and put in the big ring on the middle of <laughs> the middle of it, of it still climbing i should say uh still climbing relatively steep was just massively impressive he definitely looks like the strongest guy in this race jacone actually mentioned that in his post-race interview as well about the fact that bernal engaged a 53 year he, he, he basically said like how is this possible <laughs> everybody else was yeah. struggling to hold his wheel he stops for a second puts it in the in the big ring and yeah just takes off it was wild it was wild I think we should talk about Chicone, who we've never really seen consistently up there battling for GC. We've seen him do, do great on climbing stages here and there in Grand Tours. He's, he's won a uh, climbing jersey already, but he has now made it through 10 stages as a clear GC contender in this race. And he's been a heck of a, uh, a rider in all the big the climbing stages. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what he does. I mean, what do we get from him throughout the race in, in the you know really hard climbing stages to come? Because he wasn't just up there on stage two. He would finish second right behind Egon Bernal. It, this is a really interesting um, development from Trek Segafredo's side because they've, they've really struggled with general classification riders. I mean, Bauke has been close. Um, he was up there in the tour one year, I believe, and then crashed out on stage 18, maybe was it? And Richie Port, obviously third in the tour last year, but then left the team. And Nibali, since they signed him, has never been, has not been as good as they had probably hoped when when they were bringing on a rider like like Nibali. And now they have Ciccone, who's, you know, signed with Trek Segafredo through 2024 and is showing this real potential as a general classification rider. Sure, this is, as you said, Dane, not the best GC riders of our our current season. It's not Pogachar and Roglic, but he is still looking really, really impressive. And to my eyes, on the, the day that Bernal won, yesterday, Sunday, he was the second strongest rider in the race. And that is just huge for for Trek Segafredo to have this this kid that they've really invested in make this step up I think that the whole the whole team is really excited about him can he time trial that is an in, that will be an interesting uh an interesting thing to see I don't think that he can time trial he can't time trial as well as Bernal that's for sure but uh, it'll be it'll be very telling definitely to see how he does in the time trial especially given that it's so long Trek's a, Trek's an interesting like like you said Abby kind of an interesting GC team and I think I think signing Nibley was kind of a, a, a double-edged sword for them a couple years ago where so they signed Nibali and that helped bring Segafredo on, which is an Italian coffee company. And those two very much came hand in hand. Uh, so it was good because they brought on another big sponsor. But at the same time, they were then kind of pinned underneath Nibali as this GC guy, uh, you know, Nibali and Port for a couple of years. And it kind of prevented them from looking around and signing anybody, you know, sort of super young and exciting. And as a result, we kind of had to wait for Nibali to fully... What's the word I'm looking for? Stop, basically st- stop really riding for GC, right? Like kind of kind of just give up on that particular dream. Uh, and it seems like he's sort of finally done that this year, which then opens up opportunities for someone like Chicone, who 
as we said in the past, has won uh, climbers jersey at the Giro d'Italia, but has never really been given any opportunities on the stage race side, largely because the team already had two kind of senior GC riders. That signing of Nibali back a couple of years ago, I think, I think it 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 delayed the team's ability to pull in some new and exciting talent. And now that Nibali is sort of stepping aside and Port has fully stepped aside to a different team, I think that we're going to see hopefully some new and interesting things from, from Trek on the GC front. That's my, my theory anyway. Speaking of that time trial, I think it's going to really impact the way the next 10 stages are raced. The fact that there is a relatively long, I'm 30K, it's a decently length, uh, very flat, slightly downhill TT on that, on that uh, last GC day. I think it's going to make guys like Bernal and Ciccone and really everybody in this race that's not Remco Evenepoel, uh, it's going to make them continue to try to pick up time on Evenepoel over the next several days because he's probably going to pick up, I don't know, a minute and a half on them, roughly, maybe more in that, in that time trial. Uh, and right now he's only 14 seconds behind Bernal. So we do have the, the hardest mountain stages, several of them still to come. But Bernal needs to get... Uh, yeah, more, more than a minute and a half on, on Evenable, and he hasn't done it yet. So I think w- whatever happens, they're going to be attacking, hopefully, to try to pick up time on Evenable. Uh, Alexander Vlasov is also a decent time trialist. Uh, he's currently sitting third overall. So those two riders, particularly Evenable, but also Vlasov, I think are going to be kind of forcing everybody else to be aggressive, which is the, what, what I think a, a late time trial does. It's a good reason to have one. Uh, so when we get to this, these... Really tough days, you know, the Montalcino, the uh, Monte Soncalon climb. Hopefully we'll get some, some action just because of that. And if they don't drop Evanapool, then I think they can expect him to come back and win the race. So that'll be, that'll be pretty cool to watch. I just want to corrections corner myself really quick. Bacamolimo was sitting second in the Tour de France as of stage 18 in 2016 and then crashed out on stage 19. So continue, continue talking about Evanapool, but I wanted to correct myself. We talked about doing a corrections corner at the end. We should do probably more of them because, frankly, we could use some more corrections. <laughs> you, you say that as if we're not perfect, Kaylee. <laughs> not always. Not 100%. You know, like 99% perfect, I would say. I was, I, looking, yeah. I was looking that up. So, did Dayton, did you just mention that Venipool and Bernal were sprinting for bonus seconds today? I, we hadn't we have not that, talked no. about that yet, but that was great. Yeah, I loved that. That was super entertaining watching Evenepoel and Bernal sprint for bonus seconds. My favorite part of that was Bernal trying to stay in Ghana's slipstream as (laughs) Ghana did like his seated, you know, individual pursuit world record holder lead out thing. He's probably just sitting there doing like 800 watts seated and Bernal's behind him just like barely 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 hanging on they actually they kind of mistimed that or didn't mistime that but miscalculated that because bernal faded a bit and then eventipol came around him and then another i think it was narvaez another Ineos rider had to sprint up to make sure that the team got those bonus seconds that they were sprinting for rather than eventipol it almost backfired on them but it was spectacular to watch two little tiny sprinter dudes trying to sprint at each other it's one of my favorite things it's like the end of the end of a big long mountain stage that finishes with a flat finish and then you watch a bunch of little tiny sprinter dudes try to sprint each other it's just hilarity ensues i mean if they're going for these bonus seconds i think that that kind of indicates that that they're a little bit worried about eventipool in the coming days and and i mean there's still 11 stages left but to go for bonus seconds on stage 10 is kind of a 
a really interesting thing that, that they did. Yeah, and not just send riders up to try to take the bonus seconds, but actually try to get them for Bernal. That was the really interesting, because they could have just send, send Moscon up or something like that, you know, grab the seconds. But instead, they really they tried to get them for their own guy. I think mm-hmm. that is indicative of the fact that they're a little bit concerned. The end of the race, though, let's, 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 let's keep in mind where we are in the race, which is we haven't gone up north yet. We haven't hit any of the really big mountains yet. We've basically just been crisscrossing the, the Apennines, which is that sort of ridge at spine of of kind of medium high mountains down the middle of italy and there's some there's some hard climbs in there and some steep climbs in there but nothing compared to like dane said nothing compared to what we're going to see uh at the end of this race so there is plenty of time for eventable to crack or bernal to crack some of the big names to crack uh what we do know is that no, those big mountains are going to create larger gaps than anything we've seen thus far in the race for sure you said nothing compared twice in a row. I really thought we were going to get some Sinead O'Connor for a second there, but then you <laughs> you didn't. I was a little bummed. Sorry. I apologize. Okay. Well, I think that kind of wraps up the Giro for now. Obviously, if there are any spectacular stages this week, we will we'll drop another special episode like we did last week because sometimes there's just things that we need to talk about sooner than once a week. Keep an eye out for that. I would wager that there's probably at least one special episode later this week. With that, we move on to today's great debate. Does gravel belong in Grand Tours? Now, on one side, you've got folks like Patrick Lefevre, who runs Dakota Quickstep, who says, absolutely not, and this is not road racing, and we do not want this. And then on the other side, you have apparently most race organizers these days who continue to put gravel into stage races and i think a lot of fans out there who kind of appreciate these stages who like the fact that they're mixing it up a little bit and who might do a fair amount of gravel riding or gravel racing on their own makes road racing a little bit more approachable so with that what do we think team who's on team gravel and who's on team get gravel away from my stage racing i am emphatically on team gravel explain yourself well, I, I think, you know, Patrick Lefebvre, he could say that gravel has no place in road racing, but I mean, you don't have to look back that far, or you don't have to look that hard, I should say, at, you know, Tour de France history, for example. I mean, the early, early years, uh, the earlier examples of the races were run on dirt roads because that's what they had. Um, so it's kind of, you know, tied into the fabric of the race, I would argue. Um, I, I would say that there may be for safety reasons, not much of an argument to do gravel descents, perhaps. Um, but to have gravel climbs like what we had recently in the Giro, it, it not only makes for pretty exciting racing and not only makes for, it kind of like brings in some other different skill sets a little bit in terms of actually being able to keep traction on the road. But for me personally, I would argue selfishly that it also brings in a pretty interesting aspect from a tech perspective because it, you know whether or not people like it this way, Bike racing is a combination of racers and bikes, and you do have to put in a little bit more thought into what the bike setup is like, too. So for, for me, I think that adds a little bit more interest, and I think it certainly spices things up a fair bit without really taking anything away, personally. Dane, which side are you on here? Uh, first of all, I wonder, are, are any of us fully on the team absolutely no gravel? Because if not, I guess I'll try to make some arguments, you know, just for those folks. I'm on the team, like... Maybe a little bit of gravel. That's that's the team I'm on. 
I think James makes a good point that, you know, all of cycling should be encompassed in the Grand Tour. But the, the thing is, you got to draw the line somewhere. And we don't have uh, cycle ball in Grand Tours. That's cycling. Uh, we don't have single track descents <laughs> in, in, in Grand Tours. So at, at some point, you do have to draw that line of, OK, well, what what falls into the sort of the versatility level? And I'm fine drawing the line, not including gravel. Uh, I think gravel does introduce some fun things and the tech stuff is, is a good part of that. Uh, but it, it can also, particularly with the, the descents uh, or with some really rough gravel, I'm, I'm definitely on team not that. Um, we, we, saw, we saw descents uh, in the rain on gravel at the Giro a few years ago. Uh, Giro Rosa riders have gone over some really sketchy gravel stuff uh, and, and, you know, the Giro Rosa Peloton, I think it, it, it was not, it didn't help the race that they, that they did that. And I think the same thing was true of that a uh, few years ago at the Giro when they went on that tricky descent and it all just kind of turned into soupy roads. I don't think that helps the race. I'm on team. Okay, maybe just a little bit of gravel, but with it within reason, uh, the, the Giro stage this year with, with Egon Bernal uh, just the other day, that was fine. I think that's a good amount of gravel. But you do have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, and it was like mild gravel. Mild gravel. I'm on team mild gravel. Yeah, pretty, that was pretty chill. That was like class one gravel. I think if, if uh, frequent readers of Cycling Tips will have seen that we've classified gravel in the past, and that was definitely some, some very mellow gravel. I think some, some cycle ball as the last stage of a Grand Tour sounds pretty interesting, though, Dan. Like if you had, if you had Ineos versus, uh, versus Takuna Quickstep in Milan, at the end of the Giro, whoever wins the cycle ball match gets a 15 second time bonus. Yeah, might top last year's tour for the final stage intrigue. <laughs> That'd be pretty entertaining. No, I, I think that I think we're all kind of on the same page here. I think, Dane, you, you tilt a little bit more toward the Patrick Lefebvre side of the spectrum here, but not fully. This doesn't belong in in bike racing, which he's actually argued that even like one days with this kind of stuff is not good. Right. And by the way, we should pave over Paris-Roubaix. Yeah, pave over Perry Bay and forget about the fact that that uh, like James said, bike racing happened on really bad roads, uh, unpaved roads for a very, very long time before we sort of got to the modern modern iteration. You got to give Lefebvre some credit, though. I think his team would be one of the best at going over gravel. So the fact that he has that opinion, I I'd respect it a little bit because, you know, you'd think that he would like the gravel purely because it would be self-serving to the Dakin and Quickstep guys. They are all riders who you would think would be pretty good on gravel. So, you know, in a way, good on Lefebvre for sticking to his guns, despite the fact that his own team would probably benefit from more gravel in races. I'm, I'm pretty sure Lefebvre's opinion on that comes from Paris Tour a couple of years ago, where was it Nicky Terpstra yeah. punctured yeah. so many times that he found himself out of the race. But the year before, Terpstra won the race, I think, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, and there was no complaints then. And there's also no complaints at Strada Bianchi or Paris Bay, which are, you know, two big, big races that, that Quickstep definitely, or the coin of Quickstep, sorry, definitely target each year. So I think Lefebvre has sort of fallen into categories very similar to Andy Schleck a number of years ago where he was complaining about descents being too dangerous and descents shouldn't form part of Grand Tours. So it's, a uh, you know, if we start... <laughs> Grand Tours <laughs> should be uphill only. <laughs> can only climb. Yeah. If we start emitting gravel from Grand Tours, I think we're on a slippery slope. Where do, where do we draw the line? And for me personally, the line is... If you can ride it on a standard road bike, it should be in a, a, a Grand Tour. Uh, so, you know, that that rules out your single track sensor or unfortunately cycle ball. But uh, it, it very much means that you can include you can include gravel. And I think us as spectators of these races, it, it always brings a, 
extra dynamic to the racing action, something to look forward to. I know there's the Storato with the Strade Bianchi stage coming up on Wednesday and the Giro that I'm very much looking forward to. But I'm sure if we took a survey of the riders in the race, it's probably something like 99% of them are not looking forward to that race big or that stage simply because I'm sure, you know, they, they enjoy riding gravel or, or and and would enjoy that stage if it didn't happen to come in the middle of a grand tour but for for every rider it's just an an added element of stress and an added chance for something to go wrong especially if they've got an overall contender and and that's probably where the dislike for it within the peloton arises from i i believe but you know we're, we're here talking as spectators i i'm fairly or firmly in the keep the gravel camp I mean, like that, that's the fundamental argument against, right? Is that if you are a, a GC team, or even if you're not a GC team, they like removing variables. And gravel is just a, it's a big variable, right? All of a sudden, you have a much greater chance of flatting. You have a much greater chance of crashing. All these things that GC teams spend a lot of time and energy trying to avoid. Suddenly, the race is a little bit more outside of their hands, a little bit more unpredictable, a little bit more difficult to control. And I think that that's exactly the same reason why fans like it, right? Because that's what we want. We want to see unpredictable racing. We don't want to see riders lose a race because of luck, but luck should play, it should play a role in sport. And I think that the the sort of the old adage of you make your own luck does kind of apply here where if you've got the right technical setup, you've got the right tires, if you've got people with spare wheels in the right places, if you've prepared for this properly, then you can you can mitigate a lot of those things. It still adds this element of surprise and unpredictability that fans love. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally see why GC teams are, are, are just loathe to add another variable variable to what is already a sport full of variables right yeah i, I dare say a rider like you know tom pigcock for example he would probably probably be like sure that sounds great to me yeah 100 i mean a guy that wins a, a, a cross-country world cup is going to turn around and, and look at the gravel that has so far been in this Giro and be like well that's basically just a slightly dirty road that's not that's not really even gravel because let's be honest here most of the gravel that we're talking about in European road racing is not it's not you know unbound it's not uh, uh sort of the, the the gravel racing uh of of the western United States for example that's sort of big chunky rocks and things like that Ronan you said that gravel's okay as long as it sort of works on a road bike it's it all fits in that category with the possible exception of like the Giro Rosa last year, where that was basically because the event took place at a different time of year. The roads that would normally be compacted and wet in the springtime had dried out and were super loose and really, really hard to ride. So, you know, organizers do need to pay attention to conditions more when they're putting races on gravel than if they're just putting them on pavement. Uh, there's been some, some times when I think it steps over the line, but for the most part, I think we're all pretty much in agreement here. I think so. That I gravel mean, adds an exciting element, right? I mean, looking looking at the equipment as best as I could remotely uh, from that stage of the Giro, I mean, it does look like, I mean, everyone was on normal bikes. It looks like, um, you know, they were on maybe 28 mil tires. Um, I don't know what they were running as far as, you know, if they were running tubeless or sealant and that sort of thing. I would, I would, I would imagine that there were certainly a little bit more preventative measures uh, to, to prevent flats that, are, that were in place on that day. Um, but other than that, everything looked pretty normal and, you know, it, it's not like people were like, you know, spinning out, going up to the climb or anything like that. Like it seemed to find. 
Yeah, no issues whatsoever. And we've got more more gravel coming in this Giro. Seems like almost every Grand Tour these days has at least some gravel in it. So that is apparently the direction that race organizers think we should go. All right, I think we've sort of gone around circles on this one enough. We're all generally in agreement. But uh, as always, you know, if you disagree with us, shoot us a tweet. Drop a comment underneath the, uh, the post on cyclingtips.com. Let us know what you think. Does gravel belong in stage racing? And with that, send all the hate mail to at Kelly Fretz. <laughs> yes, I love hate mail. I read all of it. Abby, before we move into today's nerd nugget, there was a string of one day races that were also kind of not one day races in Spain over the last weekend. Uh, talk me through it. What happened? There was there was, yeah, a pile of really good racing. And actually, I think. Were they all live streamed? I watched a couple of them, two yeah. of them out of the three. Yeah, the women are in the Basque country doing a string of one day races. There was live coverage for all the races so far on GCN Plus, and there will be coverage for the next races coming up as well. So that's really exciting. The first day, the Abakimin Nafaroki, sorry, was. The weather Basque was just is maybe the hardest language. It's very, it's in, it's very true. We need a ma- We need a. If there's anybody, any listeners out there who are Basque, who can send us like the phonetic, how to pronounce well, some of Shoddy, these things. Can, that- Shadi, can you? I I could go. I could go and get. I could go and get my partner now. She well, she's Basque, but my daughter actually is Basque. She was born in Bayonne, which is the capital of the French Basque side. So. So maybe we we can get your your daughter to read it for us. Yeah, I'll get me three year old in. She'll be able to. <laughs> no problem. Probably would do as well as Abby and myself. So. <laughs> um. Anyway, the first day it was the weather was just bonkers. I mean, it looked absolutely miserable. Less than it was a, basically a third of the field finished the race. Annemiek Van Vluten won. She was away with Demi Vollering and Elise Longaborghini came in third, just a couple seconds behind. The second one day was the Navarro Women's Classic, won by Elena Sierra, Ruth Winder second, and Annemiek Van Vluten third. That was a really exciting race. The last uh, 15K of it, I think, is is definitely worth a rewatch if you want to see some. Uh, some Annemiek Van Vluten takedown, really. She tried to do her classic get off the front right away from everyone, and Ruth Winder was having absolutely none of that. It's great to see Arlena Sierra win a race. It's been a while since since she's won. There was a time a couple years ago when she was really up there in a lot of the races when she won Cadell Evans' Great Ocean Road Race and, and a couple other races. And she's been struggling a little bit the last two years, so having having her win another having her win a race and, and be up there again with the likes of Ruth Winter and Annie Van Vluten is really great to see. The Grand Primero Ciudad de Ibar Ibar was the next race. It was I need, a I, 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 I need to step in. Yeah. I have a random aside. Go for uh, it. actually I had I had dinner with Ruth and her boyfriend Zach last night. Cause she just got back to the States and uh she said while we were at dinner, that when she was chasing Annemiek Van Vluten down, she, what was running over in her head was specifically her boyfriend, Zach, saying, why does nobody ever chase Annemiek Van Vluten? Which seems like, I feel like people do chase Annemiek Van Vluten. She's just really hard to catch. Mm. But anyway, that was what was motivating Ruth as she 
chased Van Vluten down, well, twice, I think, three times. Kaylee, that's uh, not a random aside at all. That's like super, you know, on, on brand to the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I, I wanted to throw it in there as to why Ruth seemed so determined <laughs> to, to chase enemy Van Vluten. It was to basically prove her boyfriend wrong or fiance. Sorry, her fiance. Uh, and Zach, obviously, if, if anybody listens to the Nerd Alert podcast, you'll know Zach because he joins us on that as well. So it's all Zach's fault. That's why Anamik got chased down. Well, kudos to Zach for that, because I've asked myself the same question many, many a time. Um, the Grand Primero Ciudad de Ibar? I Abby, I sent you a Slack message. Me. I, I gave I you time. While Kaylee was talking, I sent you the Slack message to tell you how to say that so you get it perfectly. <laughs> I know, great. but I don't know. How do you say A-Y-I? Uh, yeah, a bar, a a bar, a bar. Yeah, um, was a mountaintop finish basically won by Anna Vandebregen by 16 seconds with Anamik Van Vluten and Elisa Longo Borghini in second and third. The gaps were pretty big, and the reason that this is a significant uh, race to kind of keep an eye on is because upcoming we have one more one day race on Tuesday. Uh, so the day that you're listening to this podcast, but. On the 20th of May is the Volta, a, the Volta a Burgos, which is the first women's world tour stage race of the year. It's a four day stage race and the stages are brutal. I mean, there's a bunch of climbing. There is a huge mountaintop on the final day and I'll have a um, race preview and who to watch and where to watch and all that fun stuff coming up on cyclingtips.com. What a great website. Great website. But <laughs> um, it, it's very telling that Anna Vandebregen was able to win over Anamik Van Vluten, who's been pretty much the best climber in the women's scene um, for many years at this point. And Vandebregen took this win um, at, at the one day on Sunday, which is a great indication of how how Burgos is going to go. It's going to be a really hard race with a lot of the, the big names there. So definitely recommend watching that. And we will talk about it in depth on the freewheeling podcast coming up this week. So if you want to know more about kind of what's going on on the women's side, you can, you can listen to freewheeling shameless plug. Do it up. We should just grab bits of freewheeling and stick it in this. Uh, this we could do that. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. We could throw in Think. some Taylor Wiles diaries. People love those. Yeah. I love the Taylor <laughs> Wiles diary. Uh, Is that the wrap up? Oh, also I should, should mention that, um, we talked to Gracie Elvin a while ago on the freewheeling podcast about the mentor program that the cyclist Alliance is is in development. They just announced it today. Um, there's a piece on this on cycling tips. So check it out. But they put together a mentor program with a bunch of brands in the cycling industry to help women, the women in the Peloton as they transition out of sport, kind of find jobs in the cycling industry and, and try to keep women who are in the sport in the sport, because a lot of women leave, um, and we don't have them around anymore. And it's a big bummer. So the cyclist Alliance just announced that mentorship program, which is really cool. And, um, that, and that's all I got now. Now I'm done. Now I'm done. It's kind of like how we hired you, Abby. Stopped racing. Yeah. Stayed in the sport. Yeah. I really would have loved to have left, but <laughs> here I am sitting here. You are, Rope, Abby. Roped you in. Roped you in. <laughs> <laughs> all right. With that, I think it's time for some nerd nuggets. But before we do, 
This week's episode is also brought to you by Bontrager and their line of daytime running lights. Why ride with daytime running lights? Because they work. Research shows that cyclists drastically overestimate how visibly we are to drivers on the road. And research also shows that riding with a flashing daylight visible light is the best way for cyclists to increase their visibility to drivers. Even pros use daytime lights. World champion Mess Peterson has been vocal about the additional respect and passing distance that drivers give when riding with rear lights. If you aren't riding with a daytime running light now, check them out. They're easy to use, little tiny, small, powerful, USB rechargeable, and can be seen from two kilometers away during the day. Montreger's Flare Tail Light was the original daytime running light. You can find yours at bontrager.com. And because we like to add a little personal anecdote to our little ad scripts, uh, as a new father and somebody who now has a little extra reason to come home at the end of my bike rides, I, I have I want to just like stick about 75 daytime running lights on the back of my bike. <laughs> <laughs> if Bontrager's out there, and you want to send me 75 daytime running lights, I would just stick them all over my bike. Because, yeah, like I said, I have a little extra reason to to want to get home at this point. And uh, I've already got, actually, Bontrager Flare daytime running light. Uh, shameless, shameless addition to the ad here. And it's great. It's super visible. I feel better about riding around in the roads when I have it blinking. Uh, yeah, highly recommended on a, from a personal perspective. I want to stick more of them on my bike. Kaylee, if you do end up taking 75 of those things and sticking them all over your bike and potentially body, then I think that warrants a cycling, t- uh, I think that warrants a cycling tips video. Oh, hundred percent. I think yeah. we should that just would... get you one of those sweaters that lights up like a Christmas sweater, but then you put it on backwards. <laughs> Not bright enough. Not bright enough. <laughs> <laughs> nope. We should also get in contact with the international space station. Just see if they can see you like if, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you probably could. You probably like seriously. I mean, these these Bontrager lights. And granted, there's there's a couple different companies that make these, but since Bontrager has the ad, and because these are the ones I've actually used quite a bit, they are ridiculously bright. They're so bright that if you're riding in a pace line with somebody and you're right behind them, it's kind of like like almost almost blinding. You kind of make sure that they're pointed down a little bit. They they're super effective. I mean, that two kilometer range. They're not exaggerating. Uh, it's 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 really quite impressive and like i said it just it just makes me feel better when i know that there's a big flashing you know very obnoxious light yeah a big obnoxious light on the back because a lot of those little rear lights are just not strong enough like you'll see i'll see other rides riders on the road and they've got a little blinky and you can't see it till you're 15 feet away like what the hell's the point of that you need a big honking flashing light so this is turning into the the longest mid-roll ad ever but uh funny you should mention that kaylee because i (laughs) i have this habit of whenever i'm out and whenever i'm out on a ride i kind of intentionally just pay attention to whether people are running blinky lights and if they are and you know if i end up catching them on the road i I always pay attention to what they're actually running and i do this um i do this when i'm driving too like if i see a rider with a blinky light i actually try and see what they're what they're using when i pass by and hundred percent. I would probably say, you know, I hate to say it like, you know, maybe three or maybe even four out of five people that I see with blinky lights on their bike, they likely have absolutely zero idea how, how basically invisible they still are with those things. Because, you know, my rule of thumb essentially is 
unless a thing is painfully bright to look at in daytime, it is not offering you the the visibility that you think you're getting. Yeah, agreed. Check them out. Bontrager Flare. This is the longest mid-roll ad ever, as James alluded to. Uh, we sell them in chunks of like 60 seconds, so maybe we'll just like invoice them for like eight or ten times. You think, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you think Bontrager would be okay with that? Sure, no, sure. Yeah, not. why not? Sure. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> anyway, let's move on to our nerd nugget. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. So, James... Today's nerd nugget. We we just have a really impressive bit of mechanicking today. W- what happened over the weekend? So I don't know if anyone listening to this saw the uh, the UCI Cross Country World Cup in the Czech Republic this weekend. Um, the racing was great. There was lots of really awesome stuff that maybe we should have talked about, but I'm not going to ruin it. So you should you should just go watch the the replay on Red Bull. It, both the men's and women's races were fantastic, but in the women's race in particular. Uh, there was one bit that was super noteworthy from a tech perspective. So American racer Kate Courtney uh, didn't have the best race. She unfortunately finished 41st on the day, so a pretty pretty unusual for her. But that was because uh, she had a flat very late in the race, and then she also had a, a crash and a mechanical that ended up with a broken brake lever. But what was really pretty amazing was that she pulled into the pits with that broken brake lever, and her mechanic, um, Brad Copeland, he, he swapped out that brake lever in, I'm not really sure how many minutes, it was like maybe like three or something like that. Uh, keeping in mind, this was a hydraulic disc brake lever. Uh, he, with the, with the assistance, which was really gracious of uh, what looked like a mechanic from a different team holding the bike and kind of like giving, giving a second set of hands. But he swapped out that brake lever and had her going in, you know, it was less than five minutes. It was pretty fantastic. No brake, uh, no brake bleed required. Uh, reason for that being because uh, SRAM uses these um, uses these connectors called connectamajigs that automatically seal off the hose and lever when you disconnect them, so that you can pull off something like that, uh, literally and figuratively. You can pull off something like that and not have to bleed the system and kind of get her going. But it was super impressive to watch. And again, if you haven't watched the race in general, you should do that. Um, but you should also just pay really close attention to when that happened because that was stellar, stellar mechanic support work. I feel like we need some sort of, you know, world record book for, for various mechanic things. Like how, how quickly can you change a brake lever in the middle of a race? There was for a little while a, a competition going on with some of the GCN hosts for how quickly you could change a flat. I don't know if that's still going or not. Dan Lloyd and I were supposed to do it and we never actually did it. It's like under a minute or something like that. Well, I, anyway, I, I have a speaking of a flat tire contest. This was way, way back in the day. This would have been back in like 94. Four maybe there was a there is a road race in downtown Ann Arbor and they had a uh, this is when I was living in Michigan and they had like a little mechanics contest like who could was it you you had to like install a chain and fix a flat or change a tube or something you and then you had to ride a lap of the course and uh, the ultimate Le Mans start Le Mans start <laughs> basically yeah so like of, of course I pulled out all the tricks I had like my my chain quick link and and you know two all ready to go and whatever and and i won two hundred dollars that day that was probably the only time i've ever won money in a race that's pretty impressive yeah i was pretty happy about it i think it was two hundred dollars anyway which back in back in 94 or whatever was quite a lot of money i was pretty happy about it we don't have like a ton to discuss about this like like you said james you just we want people to go look at it we wanted to highlight it because it's a pretty amazing feat to, to swap out anybody who's ever swapped out a hydraulic brake lever knows that doing so in three minutes is 
that's some that's some elite mechanicking. Uh, maybe we just maybe we should really briefly just talk about the mountain bike race over the weekend because, and granted, we're we're getting out of nerd nuggets here, but we had two road racers uh, at the front of the men's race anyway. This is a story that we've got up on the site as well, but Tom Pidcock won the cross country race and behind him was Matthew Vanderpool. So not something that are we claiming them as road racers? Well, that's what I was just going to get at, which <laughs> well, is like, let, let's, let's ask did, this. did we they steal make, them? Where did they make the majority of their money from? Road. road racing. <laughs> yeah, true. But like, did we, did road steal them from, I shouldn't say we, we do all the things. Did Road steal them from Cross and Mountain Bike? Or did Road steal them from Cross and then Mountain Bike stole them from Road? I don't know how this exactly worked. But anyway, it was a massively impressive performance. I mean, Pidcock was just miles better than everybody else. He was riding with Vanderpool. I think it was in the third lap. They were riding together off the front with Flukinger behind them. And Pidcock put like 30 seconds into Vanderpool in, in three quarters of a lap. It was amazing. It was unbelievable believable how much stronger he was and it sounds like he has secured an olympic slot now which was very much in question because the british men didn't have enough points they were basically i can't remember exactly the sort of the, the, the weird point system here but a, a number of other countries had to finish in a certain way for uk to get for, for great britain to get a olympic slot and it sounds like pidcock is now going to be able to go to tokyo so Something to keep an eye on if you're if you're already a fan of Pidcock and if you're already a fan of, of Vanderpool and you already know those names. This is a good sort of like intro into cross country. Red Bull runs live coverage of every single World Cup. You can head over to Red Bull TV and watch this. And yeah, last weekend's race is just a phenomenal, phenomenal cross country race with some names that our our road fan listeners out there would definitely know. Uh, might be worth mentioning too that this wasn't exactly a like a. a- well, this was an exceptionally technically challenging course too. I mean, it was it was wet, it was a little bit muddy. You know, the super rooty climbs, very slippery. I mean, for for Pitcock to not only pull off that win, but pull it off in such convincing fashion, and on a course like that, then like that, I mean, we've we've known for a while that he's been sort of like this rising superstar, and that for me just absolutely cemented it because he's not only just this beast athletically, but in terms of skill set, I mean, he's. For for him to be able to just clean all that, clean that climb in general, and then just to pull away like that was just amazing. Yeah, worth a watch. Like I said, Red Bull runs them all, uh, and you can go watch the replays as well for free, fully free. It's watching mountain bike racing is significantly easier than watching than watching road racing. Thank you, Red Bull. Uh, Red Bull, yeah, Red Bull has basically just come in and and sort of bought up the whole thing and and broadcast it all for free uh, on their on their site. So with live commentary in like seven languages too. With live commentary, it's yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. Turns out energy drinks have a very high profit margin, apparently. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. Uh, I do like how I don't know, it felt like felt like five, ten years ago, the sport was just hyper specializing, and it kind of feels like we're swinging back the other direction. And maybe it's just these these super talents we've got that can do so many different things. Uh, but yeah, like it just it, it feels like we have more riders excelling in more different types of racing than we had just a couple years ago next thing you know vanderpool is going to go into bike polo yes i'd be all about it or that um that bike dancing stuff what's the they're always doing it in gymnasiums with like the bike with the little wheels and they're dan- 
I feel that like would be fantastic. Vanderpool maybe isn't the right guy to do to do that, but Pidcock is small enough that he would maybe be really good at that. He could do some bike dancing. It, it's yeah. those it's those sports where I'm always reminded like, oh, the UCI, we know it as the the guys that run road cycling. But they have a lot of other cycling related pursuits under their umbrella. And every now and then their Twitter will will show a tweet of people playing cycle ball or dancing. And you're like, oh, yeah, there are other things that the UCI does that I don't know, you know, whether they really generate a lot of revenue for uh, La Partienne and Co. But they do tweet about it a lot. I mean, honestly, that's the kind of stuff that a governing body should be should be paying attention to is, you know, putting on your your cycle ball world championships things like that it's when they step outside that original remit that we run into issues but that is a totally separate podcast i wonder so. if they complain as much about the uci in the cycle ball world and the dancing <laughs> cycle dancing like do they have Whoa. as many problems do, do they you know do they say do they have super tuck stories every week i mean there's yeah. a cycle ball podcast out there right now where they're just complaining about how the uci pays way too much attention to this dumb sport on these skinny tires where these guys are racing downhills and uphills and they're like why don't they pay more attention to our cycle ball our cycle ball is like way cooler than that weird thing that they're doing over there it is pretty entertaining if you've never seen it cycle ball is pretty entertaining <laughs> i mean I haven't told you guys, but I, I moonlight as the editor of cycleballtips.com. <laughs> and I, right after this podcast, I have to go make another podcast about cycleball. <laughs> no, that was a lie. <laughs> Thanks for that. Anyway, anyway, should we return to the topic at hand? Ronan, I think you had some like relevant things to say about this topic <laughs> yeah no i was just going to go back to the, the mechanics and some of the skills that, that these top level mechanics have we don't we don't often get to see it on our, our screens unfortunately you know a lot of the mechanic and work is thankfully done in the evening between between stages between races but i personally know of a few examples where mechanics have just pulled off incredible changes in the backseat of a car during a road race uh you know as the car is following the, the bunch down, down the road or whatever and the the two that spring to mind i can think of at least one mechanic changing a a clincher puncture so tube just stick a new tube and pump the wheel up again in the back of the car but pumping a wheel up in the back of the car is you know it's fairly confined space <laughs> that's very impressive to me uh, and the other one I, i'm pretty sure uh one of our belgian mechanics if it wasn't our belgian mechanic it was actually it could have been a uh, kurt bogart who is basically tom pedcock's personal director sportif now uh replaced a chain uh on one of the team bikes in the backseat of a car at one point as well so yeah they, they get up to some fairly impressive uh mechanic and skills that we don't often hear about and that's a bit of a shame It'd be nice to hear more about these stories if anybody's got a story let us know i guess I one time I was racing Omlupet Newsblad and we had we were on Bianchi and there was a issue with the seat clamps happening at the time and I was on an SMP so those saddles like you know they've got the really weird dip in the middle and if they're not like perfectly placed you really can't sit on it and I hit a pothole and it just like the back of the saddle it was like nose up like I couldn't I couldn't sit on it there was there was nothing Nothing to sit on. And so I went back to the car and I was like holding on to the side of the car while Andy, our team mechanic, was trying to like move the saddle. And she was hanging out the out of the side of the car with the multi tool, like trying to or with whatever, whatever tool trying to like 
but she did it. I mean, like we were going over cobbles and I was hand, hanging out of the car and she was cha- like moving my seat so that I could sit on it again. It was really crazy. Pretty sure we got fined. But <laughs> but our, but the team director, Mary, was like, it was worth it to see that happen because she was so impressed. So it was pretty cool. Cool. I think I think one of my favorite race mechanic moments was when uh, Rigoberto Uran had a, a derailleur malfunction in the 2017 Tour de France. This is the stage that he went on to win, if you will recall. Uh, but yeah, his something went wrong with his derailleur, and it was actually one of the Mavic uh, neutral mechanics. Um, I think it was this guy named Max, uh, who's actually the dude that drove me the last time I was in a in a team car at Paris Roubaix and terrified me for about four hours anyway he leaned out of the mavic neutral car and basically was just chatting with rigo he's like what do you want me to do with this thing because it's broken and rigo's just like put it in the 11 and i remember that that. (laughs) and so max was leaning out of this car put the put the you know the 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 di2 derailleur into the 11 i don't know if he turned a uh, i don't know how he did it anyway he figured it out how to get it in the 11 and have it stay there and then Rigo won the reduced bunch sprint. It was like four or five riders in a breakaway, I think. Yeah, he just won went the into full-on beast mode. Yeah, in the 11, and he's just like churning out like 65 RPM while the dudes around him are actually sprinting, and he still won the bike race. That that was one of my personal favorites, and Rigo was just like so chill about it. He's like, yeah, it's like whatever, you know. Rigo is the closest thing we have to like a legitimate rock star in cycling. True. Very true. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. Oh, you 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 just heard uh, you just heard Bradley Wiggins' feelings, Abby. <laughs> I would not refer to Bradley Wiggins as a rock star. <laughs> I'm not saying that I I'm not saying that he is one. I'm just saying that you heard his feelings. He may think that he's one, but we all tattoos remember when... does not make one a rock star. <laughs> we all remember skinny little Bradley. If anybody's been watching the uh, the GCN Giro coverage, it's not skinny Bradley anymore. Yoked Bradley. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> we can we we don't need to talk about Bradley Wiggins. Uh all right. That's it for today. Today's Nerd Nugget, a little mechanic appreciation and some random stories. There's some good ones out there. If you have or you remember some other fantastic race mechanic story, shoot it over to us. Tweet it at us, or if you're a Velocal member, hit us up on the Slack and Maybe we'll we'll share a couple more in the coming episodes. And with that, it's time for us to wrap up. Like I said, keep an eye out for a, another special Jira episode later this week. I think pretty likely that we end up doing that. And if not, then we'll be back next Monday. Bye, everybody. See ya.